MSW Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 149 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, November 30th, last day of the month, 2023. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Strzok. We have a lot of news to cover from the holiday weekend, including updates on the New York Attorney General's civil fraud trial, along with the latest in Fulton County. Yes. And we also have updates on the E. Jean Carroll case, the hush money business falsification case, and more bad news for Rudy and Alex Jones. But first, we want to thank our patrons. By the way, we hope you enjoyed the bonus episode this past weekend, the recording of which robbed me from watching my Buckeyes lose to Michigan University. Go blue. To, yeah. Go blue. Go blue. Yeah. Yeah. But you also didn't get to see them win. So ha ha ha. That's true. Also, Pete and I are working on putting together an annual gathering for patrons. So if you or anyone you know own a venue or know someone that owns a venue that would like to host that event, just send us a message at hello at MullerSheWrote.com if you want to join and become a patron and be invited to that particular gathering, as well as our, um, you know, we have those Zoom happy hours that we do every once in a while, and you want to get these episodes ad-free and early, you can sign up at patreon.com slash aisle45pod, A-I-S-L-E-4-5-P-O-D. Today, we thank all of our Hall of Famers, and we're going to start with Patty B., January 20 Baby, Greg Kreimer, David in Brooklyn, Please don't read this on the pod. We don't need a call out. Thanks for what you do. Lance Buckley and a dinosaur in dental school. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you to our, this is the Hall of Fame day. We're doing all of our Hall of Famers today. We appreciate you. You go above and beyond. And it's, well, seriously, we couldn't do this show without you. Yeah, amazing. So with that, let's uh, go up to New York. It was, turns out it was a really bad week for Donald Trump and company. Uh, it comes on the heels of a, a witness, Jeffrey McConney. This is from Laura Italiano at Insider. Donald Trump had his worst day yet in his ongoing civil fraud trial in New York on Tuesday at the hands of his own witness, and would be one Jeffrey McConney. McConney had been called to the witness stand by the defense, but on cross-examination by lawyers for the state attorney general's office on Tuesday, he linked Trump firmly to the conspiracy and fraud counts that have yet to be decided in the non-jury trial. McConney was handed People's Exhibit 3054, which is a draft of Trump's net worth statement for 2014. He was asked to look at a note scribbled in thin blue ink on the draft's first page, quote, DJT to get final review, unquote which he said he'd written. Donald Trump would get final review, asked author Amer, the state's lawyer. 
That was my understanding, yes, McConaughey answered. Amer asked next whether Trump would get the final review of every net worth statement until leaving for the White House in 2017. That was my understanding, yes, McConaughey answered again. And then asked whether that was his handwriting on the drafts, the thin blue pen marks. McConaughey also said, yes, it was. Starting with the damage to McConaughey himself, his blue ink notations directly contradict his testimony from the prior day. The spreadsheet czar had testified on direct examination on Monday that he would review each year's draft net worth statement with Weisselberg, who would then give the approved draft to the outside accounting firm of Mazars USA, which would print the final statement. The chain of command from McConaughey to Weisselberg to Mazars leaves out one very important link, as the state's lawyer Amher pointed out on cross-examination on Tuesday. Quote, I believe there was a step in between that involved Donald Trump prior to 2017. Amor asked McCarthy, or McConney, who appeared uncomfortable on the stand as he said that, yes, Trump indeed did the ultimate signing off. Now, McConney's many handwritten notes indicate it was Trump and his top executives who made the last edits and then signed off on these net worth statements. As such, the notes do some serious damage to the primary Trump defense, which has been blame Mazars, blame the accountants, blame anybody other than Trump himself. And McConney's cross-examination came minutes after a dramatic tearful conclusion to his direct testimony. Yeah. And that's interesting too, because I know Weisselberg has kind of testified to these things as well. So he could be in trouble here. And also, you know, Weisselberg was uh, given a $2 million severance package that was to be paid after uh, all of this was said and done. So this might hurt that. Uh, we'll see. But that's also being looked at, his, his, his golden parachute. Like, was this pursuant to you bullshitting your way through the through this testimony. It feels like that. But yeah, the tearful, dramatic conclusion. Um, this is reporting from Adam Klasfeld at Messenger. During those weepy moments after McConaughey totally gave the game away on cross that Donald was directly involved in the conspiracy, McConaughey rattled off his many legal woes and may have disclosed a new one. He said that he had received a subpoena from the Southern District of New York some two hours before he was supposed to testify. Now, McConaughey has been called to testify twice in the civil fraud case and once in the criminal case, and it's unclear before which stint of the witness stand he claims to have received a subpoena. So we aren't sure about any of that. A spokesperson for the Southern District of New York would not confirm or comment on a subpoena. And we also don't know if McConaughey was confusing the Southern District of New York with the Manhattan District Attorney or the New York Attorney General's office or if he actually meant the Southern District of New York, because that's the feds, right? And we've been long wondering if the feds were investigating this at all, Pete. We were like, uh, the IRS, we know that uh, that um, Tish James made a criminal referral to the IRS in the Southern District of New York, but we hadn't heard a peep from anybody about whether they were criminally, federally investigating this tax fraud stuff. Yeah, and it has been very quiet. And I think, you know, again, it, it's prudent to not assume it was SDNY. But for somebody who's a witness who comes out and says the Southern District of New York, particularly if they're not, an, well, I, I guess whether or not they're an attorney, it's not easy to sort of mix up, oh, the district attorney or the Manhattan DA or the New York attorney general with the Southern District in New York. Now, it could be as confused, but I do think, I, you know, a Freudian slip. It would account for the extraordinary. I mean, he was in tears. He broke down. And so mm -hmm. between the things that he was having to recant that clearly, you know, he would, had shown 
based on his testimony the prior day that no Trump wasn't involved and then being shown that handwriting where, you know, for DJT to sign off on going back on that testimony and saying, no, 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 in fact, yeah, Trump did review it. If you add in the potential stress of a subpoena from the feds, I can see how that would leave somebody shaken. So I, I, I think it's smart not to, you know, necessarily take it at, you know, 100% face value. And of course, DOJ is not going to confirm that. That's, that. that's standard practice. They're not going to say, and, and they cannot say by uh, the rules of federal grand jury secrecy, a, somebody who goes into the grand jury, somebody who's given a grand jury subpoena can talk about receiving the subpoena. They can go in and provide testimony or provide records to the grand jury. They are free to talk about that at length with whomever they want. But the government is restricted and may not. Uh, it uh, is, you know, kind of under the grand jury secrecy rule. So the fact that, you know, SDNY couldn't confirm or comment, uh, it's just, you know, in a, that that lines up with the 60, the, the rules for uh, grand jury secrecy. So I, again... This is all guessing right now, but if he said SDNY or the Southern District of New York, I think there's a pretty decent chance it was, in fact, criminal investigators from and prosecutors from SDNY. Yeah, that and the fact that, I mean, he lives in New York. Uh, he lives in New York City. Uh, he, he's been working there as an accountant for a very long time uh, and has probably dealt with the New York Attorney General, the Manhattan DA, and the Southern District of New York. So I I would assume that he knows the difference, but we don't know. We we can't get any follow-up on it. And like you said, it's uh, against grand jury secrecy rules for, for DOJ to comment. Um, all right. So we also have the latest in the battle over Judge Angoron's dual gag orders. And this is from Lisa Rubin at NBC. In a filing that supported ending a temporary pause on the gag order, an officer with New York State Court Systems Department of Public Safety said the judge presiding over the case, Judge Angoran, had already been the subject of harassment and threats on social media that were deemed credible before the trial started in early October. Then on the second day of the trial, Trump posted a message on Truth Social identifying Angoran's principal law clerk and falsely claiming she was in a relationship with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. While Trump himself did not threaten her, uh, this is Holland who said this, quote, the comments made in his post resulted in hundreds of threatening and harassing voicemail messages that have been transcribed in over 275 single spaced pages, 275 pages. Jack Smith, by the way, picked up on this and notified the D.C. appeals court of the threats in New York, because during a hearing in the gag order issued by Judge Chutkin with the uh, appeals court, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, they had brought up the New York case and they had brought up the threats there and they were asked questions about that, you know, the New York Attorney General's case and Judge Engeron's gag orders. And so they notified the court, hey, since you asked us about this and since we talked about it and we talked about it in the hearing and in briefings, we have an update for you. Here's 275 single space pages of threats. Now, the pause on Judge Engeron's gag order will remain in place until at least Monday, November 27th, when Trump's last filing is due, which he has made and which is 1,900 pages. But a word salad. I mean, I, it's, I, we'll, we'll bring everybody up to, up to speed next week on the podcast, but I, I have little doubt that you know, it, it, Trump has continually shown he will use these proceedings both in filings and verbal argument as campaign ads. Um, so I, I think, I, I don't think it'll have a lot of merit, but you know, we'll see. 
Yeah, it's 1,900 pages. It just came in today when we record this episode. Everybody's still parsing through it. So yeah, we'll discuss it next week. But now that that filing has been made, the appeals court in New York is free to decide the matter. That was the final filing that, that came in. And I, I imagine it was 1,900 pages to, to push that uh, the lifting of the gag order off as long as possible. Uh, and you know, one final quick update also, Trump wanted to call Barbara Jones as a witness today on Monday as we record this. Judge Angeron appointed Barbara Jones as the monitor over the Trump organization in 2022. She was also, by the way, a special master in the Rudy Giuliani and Michael Cohen search warrants. Uh, but Angeron uh, ruled from the bench saying she couldn't be a witness because she's an arm of the court. Uh, and she was appointed to monitor and dissolve Trump's businesses. And there'd be a clear conflict of interest to have her as a witness. So uh, she didn't get to uh, go up for the defense today. It probably would have been really bad for the defense anyhow. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree. I, it's, they saved they saved a bullet um, headed their way because I don't. she has a reputation of being just an absolute straight shooter. And I don't think what she has to say would do uh, Trump any favors. Right. And that's why I think it was made they made the request to have her testify, the defense did, knowing that the judge wouldn't, there'd be a conflict of interest and she so wouldn't unfair. be able to testify so, so that they can say, she's the only one who would say there was no fraud. She would say there's no fraud uh, when actually she would say um, <laughs> there was fraud. So um, that's, again, one of those things like him trying to say that he wants the D.C., case and trial televised after changing his mind because he knows that it will probably not be televised and he can have, again, something to complain about how unfair uh, the process is. Um, also, Eric Trump is set to testify for the defense on December 6th, and Donald Trump himself is expected to be the final witness to testify for the defense on December 11th. So get ready for a Merry Christmas. Yeah, I'm really curious if Trump actually goes through and testifies because he opens himself up to cross-examination and I don't see how that ends well for him. And on the other hand, he cannot resist the draw of a microphone to pontificate. Now, whether, you know, and how far... He already knows he's going to lose. Ingram so lets him go, you know, with just, you know, throwing out nonsense or if he shuts him down or just lets him talk. I guess that's the calculation. But yeah, a lot of stuff. That's going to be a busy, you know, this is next week. And that's going to be a ton of stuff going on because we've got that. We got Rudy starting uh, down here in D.C. with uh, Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman and the defamation uh, damages you know, trial. So it's going to be going to a lot going on next week. Yeah. And uh, we're going to have a, a live reporter on the ground who's going to be uh, taking, taking in some of those Rudy uh, trial trial dates, and that's you. So we'll be able to talk about what happens in that courtroom, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so he, that starts December 11th. So you'll have Trump testifying in New York on December 11th. So far, as as far as we know, that's the tentative date. And we'll have Rudy. Um, I think maybe probably jury selection starts on December 11th for Rudy. Right. Um, I think it, yeah. And I'm trying to remember, I think the estimate was all said and done between jury selection to both sides. I think it'll take the better part of a week. So, you know, when the, the list of witnesses become clear, whether or not Rudy decides to uh, take the stand or not, I think a lot of that we won't know until um, we're, we're in trial itself. But he has to show up and judge directed that he, uh, that he appear. So yeah, he'll yeah. be there sitting on the uh, defendant side of the uh, courtroom. With his face melting, probably. So mm. we'll see. 
Yeah, Ark of the Covenant. Hopefully, hopefully not gassy. Face mounting, <laughs> face melting, fine gas, not so yeah. great. Wear but, a mask. Uh, we'll you don't want to get yeah. fart COVID. <laughs> um, so that, that, and you know, fifteen to forty-three million minimum. That's just for one set of damages. There could be more awarded, and so, and and we're going to talk about this later in the show. He actually is on the hook for even more money, so that's going to be uh, fun too. But we we do have to take a quick break before we get to any of that. So everybody, stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, welcome back. We have some more Hall of Fame patrons to thank. I've updated my shout-out name to this. I'm terrified of elevators, so I'm taking steps to avoid them. Another Minneapolitan, BackdropBooks.com, Punk Rock Liberal, Suzanne Ashworth, and Cindy McNary. Again, thank you. Thank you so much, Hall of Famers. You are truly the the lifeblood of this and just critical team members of making all of this go. So can't thank you enough for everything you do and your support. And we we appreciate you and uh, value more than we can, uh, where they can, more than we can easily say. So let's now, let's head down to Georgia. So this past week, there was a hearing on Harrison Floyd's bond. District Attorney Fonnie Willis filed a motion to revoke bail and remand Harrison Floyd to jail for his ongoing social media posts about the DA, the Secretary of State, and Ruby Freeman. Willis argued for the state herself, but the judge didn't revoke bail, even though he said Floyd technically violated the terms. This is from the New York Times. Judge Scott McAfee of Fulton County Superior Court chose not to revoke the bond of Harrison Floyd, the co-defendant. Instead, he signed off on modified terms, prohibiting Mr. Floyd from posting further comments about witnesses in the case. Mr. Floyd's lawyers noted that Mr. Trump himself had issued provocative social media posts about the Georgia case and that no action had been taken against him. That, they argued, made, quote, the state's decision to go after Harrison Floyd hard to justify, unquote. They also argued that Mr. Floyd had not been trying to intimidate or threaten anyone with this post, but they acknowledged by the end of Tuesday's hearing that he had walked up close to the line of violating the terms of his bond. Now, here's what uh, the judge added to the terms of his release. The defendant shall make no social media post of any kind on any platform whether public or private, concerning any co-defendant or witness in this case or concerning any person specifically named in the indictment. This shall include but is not limited to mentioning, e.g. at username, referencing, tagging, direct messaging, following or subscribing to, liking posts by another user that would violate this order if posted by the defendant, commenting on or replying to posts by another user that would violate this order if posted by the defendant, and reposting posts by another user that would violate this order if posted by the defendant. Quote, social media post of any kind on any platform shall include but is not limited to streaming, blog posts, Twitter, also known as X, Truth Social, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Parler, Gab, Telegram, and Gibson Go. I love the fact, by the way, that everybody, even even judicial judicial bodies are still calling Twitter, Twitter, which Twitter. I, it, it me. <laughs> yeah. But I, you know, it, it's interesting. I don't, I mean, I don't know what you think, but it was, this is one of those things that this, as far as I have seen, is the first sort of incorporation of any like attempt to define what mentions or threats 
actually look like in a social media or online context. You know, it's they, they've been broad in other, you know, in New York, in D.C., but we had the judge now down in, in Fulton County saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to, working with, you know, both parties, we're going to define exactly what this means in the terms of release. And, you know, it seems to me, you know, pretty comprehensive. He is certainly, you know, Floyd is on notice now. I'm curious to see if he has the self-control to, uh, to abide by this. But this kind of lays out very clearly, uh, precisely what mentions on online and social media mean. And it, you know, it seems pretty good to me. I looked through it and I didn't see a lot of gaps in that definition and also seems somewhat reasonable. Yeah, because I remember Harrison Floyd's lawyers arguing that, hey, if we just at someone on Twitter, if we, you know, tag them with the at sign, that's not communicating. Yeah, that's bullshit. just referencing them. No, I'm sorry. You you reference someone uh, by subtweeting them, by just putting their name and not tagging them. Tagging them alerts them. And that is a form of communication. So they have to modify that to include adding people. Um, you can't reference, tag, direct message. That and following or subscribing to, um, he can't do that either, or liking a post that would violate the order if he made it. Like, he can't do any of that. It's very restrictive. Um, but the, their defense, Harrison Floyd's lawyer, made the same argument I did. Why are, you, why are you trying to revoke his bond and not Donald Trump's when Donald Trump has done far worse? So... Um, yeah. And that, I think, you know, that's going to be the question in all these things for all these other defendants in all these other settings. Why are you treating us differently? Why does Trump get a different set of rules yeah. from everybody else? And the answer, I mean, there is a legitimate, I think it's not immediately. I think it is legitimate to say because he's running for president. But you can't say that because then you put him above the law. Right. So they can't really they can't really say, well, he's running for president. Oh, well, so then I can just run for president and I won't be, I can say whatever I want. That, you know, I mean, that opens a whole awful can of worms. Yeah. And, and, and I, is the same question that we've been asking for a very long time. Right. Of why he does get these separate rules. And, and again, and he plays in the margins. He knows he goes up to the line and he knows where that line generally is. And he puts his little foot on the other side and looks left and looks right Tiny to see if hand. mom's going to come and smack his little hand out of the cookie, you know, drawer. And when it doesn't happen, then he just kind of, you know, walks over to that line and then the line shifts. And this has been his pattern of behavior, not just during the presidency, but shoot for, you know, decades in business. Right. And so I, you know, I'm curious to see if this sort of wording and form for media posts gets, if we see it again up in New York, or if we see it again, uh, you know, somewhere in DC, because part of what McAfee said is like, look, I wasn't, when we worked out these bail, this was, you know, it was consent. I didn't, I wasn't there. It didn't talk specifically about this. So I got the sense that, you know, the judge wanted to give him put them on notice. Like, look, it might've been ambiguous. I'm going to make sure it's not ambiguous anymore. This is exactly yeah. and specifically what it means. And now you're on notice. And, you know, that is, you know, sort of judicial prudence, you know, a, a good measured judge isn't going to like, you know, level a shotgun and, you know, take somebody out on the first offense. They're going to sit there and say, okay, I'm going to like clear this up. So there's no ambiguity whatsoever about what is or isn't allowed and don't do it anymore. And like you said, I mean, that, you know, Following somebody, not being able to do that, you know, that's, 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 you know, pretty uh, restrictive yeah, in some ways. It's basically just put down social media until the trial's over. 
that's, you know, just don't do anything <laughs> on social media. Um, all right. So also down in Fulton County, uh, the cheese wants to travel some more. This is from Steve Riley at Mess at the Messenger. Ongoing probes related to the 2020 election in Arizona, Nevada, and D.C. Former Trump election attorney Kenneth Chesbro on Monday requested changes to his probation conditions in Georgia. Quote, currently, as reported in the national media, there are investigations of the election fraud cases ongoing in Nevada, Arizona, and D.C., that's what the filing from Cheesebros or Chesbro's Atlanta-based defense attorney, Aurora, states. Mr. Cheesebro needs to be able to travel to these jurisdictions in order to meet with counsel, etc. And etc. is doing a lot of heavy lifting <laughs> in this particular <laughs> request. Uh, meet with what counsel? Isn't your counsel Atlanta-based? Are you talking about counsel? prosecutors in dc and nevada and arizona etc what are you going to be meeting about but he needs to be able to travel to these jurisdictions and when you're on probation you need to get leave of court you need to get permission to travel beyond the georgia indictment and the washington dc election subversion case led by jack smith investigations into the fake electors have also led to criminal charges in michigan Go investigations blue are ongoing in Arizona, Nevada, and New Mexico. What did you say? No, I said go blue. No, this is awesome. I go, mean, oh. again, just, <laughs> just the blue. scope of the, 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 yes, and I'm, you know, in, in every sense of the word. I, the, the, there was so much crime, and I think part of it, too, like, remember, like, Aurora is a local council, so he is, you know, almost certainly, you know, licensed to practice law in Georgia, or at least Fulton County. But probably isn't licensed to practice in Arizona, Nevada, New Mexico, Michigan, or anywhere else. So to the extent Chesbro or any one of these other knuckleheads has a potential criminal exposure, even as just a witness, they can't, like Aurora can't sit there and tell them, you know, unless he's, you know, a member of the bar in Michigan, Arizona, Nevada, New Mexico. That's four, right? Four other states in addition to Georgia. Chesbro's, along with all these other folks, have to go out and find counsel who are barred, members of the mm. bar in these different jurisdictions, including federal court in Washington, D.C. with Jack Smith. So, you know, none of this comes cheap or easy. Uh, it couldn't happen to a nicer bunch of folks. But uh, yeah, you're right. Et cetera. Mm. Yeah, he just has to meet with counsel, et cetera. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, here's, the, here's a quote um, from uh, Arizona Attorney General uh, Chris Mays's office. I will have to decline to comment, giving our office's ongoing investigation. That was in response to questions about Chesbro's filing Monday. Like, what's the et cetera? I think they called up Arizona and said, what do you need him for? Can't comment, right? Nevada Attorney General's office also has no comment. Uh, didn't get anything from the DOJ. You're never gonna. Uh, Fulton County Superior Judge Scott McAfee earlier this month approved one change requested by Chesbro to his probation condition that allows him to travel between Georgia and his residences in New York and Puerto Rico. So, as I said, you got to get permission if you want to travel outside the jurisdiction when you're on probation. And so now he needs permission to go, you know, do et cetera. In Nevada, Arizona, and D.C. <laughs> yeah, and some of that, like, look, he's already decided to cooperate and take a plea. So it doesn't make a lot of sense if you're going to agree to Georgia and, you know, what his exposure is in those other states. I think the presumption is if I'm an investigator, 
or a prosecutor in any one of those other states, I'm going to sit there and say, look, you know, you've already chosen to cooperate. You know, we want, if you're a witness, fine, we want your help and we need your help. And here's a grand jury subpoena if you don't want to do it voluntarily. But if you've got some sort of criminal exposure, to let them know that, you know, you're the, again, I don't know how at the state level, you know, subject versus target may mean different things than they do in a federal context. But if those investigators and prosecutors see potential criminal culpability on the part of Chesbro, I think their assumption would be, look, you've cooperated and made a deal with Georgia. We anticipate you would be interested in cooperating and making a deal in Michigan, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, wherever he might have information about potential criminal activity. So, you know, that, again, like you said, that, et cetera, doing a ton of heavy lifting, uh, including potentially working out some sort of cooperation agreements uh, in those state, those different state uh, investigations about the election. But he didn't ask for permission to go to Michigan. And Michigan (laughs) hasn't charged him. And so I'm wondering if... That's a Jack Smith joint. The national, you know, trying to get into voting data, voter databases, the national fraudulent elector scheme. He is an un- unindicted co-conspirator in D.C., but maybe a witness, maybe a subject, like you said, maybe a target in Arizona and Nevada, but apparently doesn't need to go to Michigan for anything unless we get a filing this week where he asked permission to go to Michigan. We'll find out. Give it time. Give it time. No, and, and we, we've talked about it before. I mean, you know, this is more for, for the Jack podcast, but I am super, super interested after Trump is done, when Smith turns his sights on indicting others, yeah. you know, co-conspirator went through six hop out, uh, obviously is, is being first on the list, but where he draws the line in terms of I'm going to charge these people as opposed to doing what Mueller did with like, I'm going to refer these other people to the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. or EDVA or wherever the case may be. And or simply like, this is this is a bridge is too it. far. Right. And, yeah. Because you know, like for Scott Perry, for example, he's been battling, we know, at least with Scott Perry to get information off of the phones they seized from Scott Perry. Yep. Perhaps other members of Congress were all of it's under seal. We only know about Scott Perry because Scott Perry sued on the public docket and then everything went back under seal. We don't know if uh, Jack Smith won that privilege battle, that speech or debate clause battle, uh, or to what extent, or if these guys are in danger uh, of being indicted, or if he just got the information that he's been trying to get from his phone and now they're investigating and maybe there's more to come out. After the Trump thing, there could be, I mean, I, you don't really supersede an indictment with additional unindicted co-conspirators, so maybe that's being held. I mean, there's so many things going on behind the scenes that we don't know, but that we will know as soon as, if, in fact, Jack Smith is waiting until after the Trump trial is done, I think we'll start seeing uh, some answers. But who knows? Yep. No, agreed. And the funny thing is, too, I mean, the dangerous thing, not funny, the dangerous thing is that those, if there is some desire to wait until Trump is done, that almost certainly would push maybe not the indictment, but certainly the trial well past the next election. And of course, if Trump is reelected, these are at the federal level and he could easily shut them all down. So, you know, time, I'm I'm sure they've thought this through and made a decision. We're going to go with Trump first and, you know, the time it falls where it, where it does. But I think there's, there are a lot of just what happens if Trump is reelected to all of these things, not at the state level, but at the federal level is pretty profound. So, Yeah, agreed. 
All right. So speaking of John Eastman, you know, turning from weird to weird, John Eastman has filed a weird motion in Fulton County just this past Sunday. It's entitled Eastman's Opposition to State's Motion to Schedule Trial Date for August 5th, 2024. And this is quoting from the motion. Defendant John Charles Eastman, by and through his counsel, files this, his opposition to the state's motion to schedule trial date for August 5, 2024, stating in part that waiting until June 21st, 2024 for the final plea date is both arbitrary and capricious. The final plea date should be established earlier in 2024 so that defendants who do not have lifetime United States Secret Service protection and who are not running for election to an office can exercise and have their right to a jury trial completed within 2024. But he doesn't want a, he doesn't want a speedy trial by no means, but he, Just, he's like, he, you, know what it, you know what this says to me? We don't have a lifetime U.S. Secret Service protection and I'm out of money. That's that's what it says to me is he's broke and he doesn't want this to drag on any further than it has to. Yeah. And I think there well, I, I think there are a few things going on. I was, so so it, it continues within the state's motion. The state asserts it will entertain guilty pleas up until the final plea date. It continues after the final plea date. The defendants will only have the option of non-negotiated pleas and the state intends to recommend maximum sentences at any remaining sentencing hearings. Moreover, the state requests this court to not consider any severance issues until after the final plea date. So, I, And then finally, establishing a final plea date earlier in 2024 and severing the defendants into two groups would provide more than enough time for the court to try two trials each for eight or fewer defendants absent former President Trump, who at the present may be said to be the presumptive Republican nominee for the office of the President of the United States. Without Defendant Trump in the courtroom, the U.S. Secret Service will not be involved in providing enhanced security, and the trials won't proceed faster. Then finally, it has this footnote. Former President Defendant Donald John Trump has already filed his opposition to the state's trial date motion and seeks a hearing. Defendant Eastman also seeks a hearing on this matter. So, I th- look, I think there are a few things going on. One, he doesn't want to go to trial with Trump. I think he right. knows that that, you know, the potential... St- taint, the stink, the, 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 this sort of bad, you know, garbage that attaches to you anytime you have to, you know, show up in the docket with, you know, Trump is not a good thing for your trial. And I think there's probably some games playing going on, not only for himself, but also Trump to try and get this, you know, to, to funny Willis has said they want to try all of them together and has resisted splitting anybody up into any groups. They were going to do the the speedies, but then all those pled out. So now you've got the rest of the group, which the the DA said they want to try them all together. So splitting it up, I think, is something that, you know, whoever goes first, the people coming after them get the benefit of seeing the state's uh, case, right? The way they're going to present the case, the, you know, sort of their theory of things, the evidence. And so to split them gives an inherent advantage to those people coming later. And by Eastman saying, I don't want to go with Trump. I want to go first. I don't want to wait on him. Well, that helps Trump too. Now it hasn't been decided, but I think there are a lot of different, you know, sort of shenanigans that may be going on with this. Well, right. Cause the state requested in, in her filing to have an August 5th trial date that we don't consider severing anyone from Trump or into groups until after that final plea date in June. We want to know who's going to plead voluntarily, and then we'll decide. Yeah, and it makes sense, because why would you do severance motions before you know who all is going to be on trial? So uh, he doesn't like that. 
Um, he, he, he wants to be able to sever now. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, we'll see uh, how this ends up shaking out. But it makes sense to me, and I don't think the judge will allow for severance motions until after the final plea date. But maybe he considers moving it up. I don't know. But you, you, it's hard when the prosecutor and you have this many people are saying we're going to need this much time and you are past the, the date to ask for a speedy trial to ask for a speedier trial. It's just going to be tough. Yeah, 100 percent. And I don't think it is going to be granted. I do think it is just a sort of one of many filings to come, which show that, yeah, I do think that we won't get one trial. But I think all these different remaining defendants filing things like this are naturally just going to push, you know, if anything, delay this trial as much as Georgia wants to go before the election. I think it's, you know, the kind of thing that gives a uh, a pretty decent example of why this may get delayed more than we probably want. And meaning by that, I mean, after the election, potentially. Yep. Agreed. hundred percent. All right. Well, we have more Hall of Fame patrons to thank and more news to get to, but we have to take a quick break. So everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody, welcome back. All right, more Hall of Fame patrons to thank. Tiffany Trump was adopted. Caroline Komen. Fran Reichenbach. Top Secret Redacted Redacted Orcon No Forn FISA. I love that one. Sloan Russell. Karen Sherman. Dadolf Trittler. Okay. And I'm fast at sex, but y'all can call me Dr. Penisberg. This one gets changed, I think, every couple of weeks. <laughs> so thanks for that. There's a recurring theme, but yeah, you're right. Yep. All right. Uh, we have a new filing in the E. Jean Carroll case. And this is E. Jean Carroll 1. Keep in mind, we have E. Jean Carroll 1 and E. Jean Carroll 2. E. Jean Carroll 1 was her suit citing defamation based on what Trump said in 2019 when he was president. Carroll 2 was filed when he said the exact same things when he was out of office. So he no longer had the argument that uh, he can say whatever he wants when he's president, which the DOJ ended up rejecting anyway, which is why we now have Carol 1 on the docket. Carol 2 was already decided by a jury. They awarded E. Jean Carroll $5 million in damages, and they found that Donald Trump did not, by the law, rape E. Jean Carroll, but did sexually assault her and did defame her. And so that is what the jury already decided, awarded $5 million. And the judge actually came back later after this whole trial for E. Jean 2 was over, and she said he raped me. He filed, I guess, a lawsuit for defamation saying, uh, it wasn't rape. The jury didn't say it was rape. And the judge actually found that colloquially it was. And it's not defamation to say that you raped her. Um, so now we have E. Jean 1, because at first the Department of Justice was going to sub in to represent Donald Trump because of the Westfall Act, because he, he was he defamed her as president. And so that would pretty much dismiss the case. But then after going to the appellate court, that was Barr's decision, by the way. And then after going to the appellate court, the appellate court ruled in their, it, you know, made their decision and Merrick Garland reviewed it and said, you know what? You're right. Here's why you're right. We are no longer going to represent Donald Trump. And the things that he said while president are not protected, you know, from defamation. And so that allowed 
aging to bring the original defamation case back. And they filed several motions. We know that that the court is going to have to, uh, the jury is going to have to take uh, the, take it that he defamed her because these are the exact same words. They don't have to de- de- like decide that again. And this is just a damages trial. And so now they've submitted what's called an agreed statement of facts and stipulations. This was submitted on November 22nd, five days ago uh, from when we record this, about a week ago from when you hear this episode. And what this stipulations thing is, is it's basically that the, the judge wants to know, what do you all agree on? And so they write out, basically, E. Jean's lawyers write out all these facts, and then Trump can come in and say, I agree, I agree, I disagree, I agree, I disagree, here's why I disagree, here's what I think instead, uh, etc. And it started out pretty standard, the first four stipulations, which Trump agreed to. Um, first of all, this case involves two parties, E. Jean Carroll and the defendant Donald J. Trump former president of the United States. Trump agrees. Miss Carroll is a writer and an advice columnist. Donald Trump agrees. On June 21st, 2019, New York Magazine published an excerpt of a forthcoming book by Miss Carroll, a portion of which contained her account of being sexually assaulted by defendant Donald John Trump. He agrees with that. According to Miss Carroll, in the mid-1990s, Miss Carroll encountered the defendant at a Bergdorf Goodman department store in Manhattan where he assaulted her. Trump agrees with that. And here's where Trump starts to disagree with the stipulated facts. Eugene says, on June 21st and 22nd, 2019, after that excerpt was published, Mr. Trump publicly denied knowing Ms. Carroll, denied sexually assaulting her in the mid-90s, and accused her of fabricating the assault for ulterior and improper purposes. Trump disagrees with this. He wants to say instead that on June 21 and 22, 2019, after the excerpt was published, Mr. Trump, who at the time was the sitting president publicly denied Miss Carroll's account. So he wants to get in there that he was the president at the time. He also disagrees with this stipulation. The jury must accept as established as a matter of fact that Mr. Trump lied in June 2019 when he denied sexually assaulting Miss Carroll and that his June 2019 statements about Miss Carroll were false and defamatory. He disagrees with that. So apparently he wants to fight the presidential immunity argument, which has already been rejected, and he seems to want to argue that the damages aren't as bad as all that. His, the rest of his, you know, stipulations that he disagrees with that he wants to amend are to, to basically say, it's not, as all, it's not as bad as all that, you guys. It's not worth that much money, basically. She wasn't as harmed as she says she was. Now, I imagine the judge will leave the damages up to the jury, right? having already denied Trump his motion to cap damages at $5 million. He filed a motion saying, since I was had to pay $5 million in the last one, that should be the maximum here. And the judge was like, nah, bro, that's not how it works. Um, and I assume she will not allow Trump to use the defense that he was president at the time, but I'm not sure. We'll see. But, uh, you know, he can't really say it's not. He didn't defame her because he was president. It's already been decided. But we'll let you know what, if anything, the judge rules about this joint stipulation filing. It might just be for information. There may not be a ruling coming. I'm not sure exactly how that works in this in these particular cases after those stipulation filings are made. But of course, you know, we'll keep you uh, we'll keep you posted as to anything that the judge says before the trial begins in January. 
Yeah, I completely agree. As far as damages go, that's something that I can't imagine the court would want to do anything other than leave that for the jury to decide damages. But again, you know, from from Trump's perspective, that what he cares about most beyond his ego is his money. So this is something where I think that a five million dollar cap, I don't think is going to come anywhere near to what a uh, jury might feel is appropriate. But yeah, we'll see. But, you know, in terms of like, you know, let's stay right here with uh, up in New York, but we have some pretrial motions in the upcoming criminal hush money case against Trump. A lot of people forget that, about this one. Yeah, don't don't sleep. This is <laughs> again, you, know, you need it. You need a, a, a whiteboard to keep track of all this. So Trump filed an overly broad motion to subpoena Michael Cohen that included his cell phone. And Michael Cohen is seeking to quash that subpoena. This is reporting from Adam Klasfeld that Trump's former fixer, Michael Cohen, asked the judge on Tuesday to quash what he termed a wildly overbroad subpoena in the former president's criminal hush money case in New York City. This is Alvin Bragg. The 33-page motion to quash says, The subpoena issued to Mr. Cohen is an obvious and blatant act of witness intimidation and merely the latest incident in a years-long pattern of harassment and retaliation by Defendant Trump. Now, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg's office also asked Supreme Court Justice Juan Merchon to sideline the subpoena to Cohen on similar grounds. Both the DA's request and Cohen's ask, or in, in Cohen's uh, uh, request, note that Trump sued his ex-fixer for half a billion dollars before withdrawing that lawsuit. And the DA argues that Trump's aim is to gather evidence if he should ever file the suit again, as he promised that he would do. So again, this is, you know, we're all sleeping on Alvin Bragg and the fact that is, you know, there is a criminal case in New York. You know, we're talking a lot about Georgia. We talk, of course, federally, but, um, you know, New York is still hanging out there. And this isn't a civil case. This is a case where, you know, potential jail time is there. And Cohen is clearly a, a key and integral uh, witness in the Manhattan DA's case. So, well, we don't have a ruling yet. We'll see whether or not they quash that subpoena. But again, where, where Trump is using, you know, he's wielding the law as a weapon, right? I mean, if he's going to be a defendant, and we're seeing this certainly in, uh, you know, in the federal case as well, going on fishing expeditions for information that he can use in other cases and other circumstances. And it sounds like both uh, Michael Cohen, his attorneys, as well as the district attorney's office are in the, you know, sort of same state of mind that this shouldn't be allowed. So we'll wait and see uh, what the court decides. Yep. Yep. And hey, friendly reminder, Steve Bannon was indicted by Alvin Bragg on multiple felonies for his We Build the Wall scheme. So I feel like you may have forgotten about that, but we're keeping an eye on it for you too. (laughs) But of course, Bannon can't seem to keep an attorney because he doesn't pay his bills much like Rudy. Um, And uh, as you know, uh, and probably expected we do have an update on that but we have to take another quick break so uh, everybody stick around we'll be right back all right welcome back and thanks to the balance of our hall of fame patrons dr david kirkland j bateman maria tovar at dirt road dims star lanus mr half speed 
devil went down to Georgia. He was looking for an election to steal. He was in a bind. He was way behind by 11,780 votes. And Sharon Tikalski, thank all of you so, so very much for everything you do to make this show possible. Uh, simply could not do this without your support. And so thank you. So <laughs> let's let's turn now to Rudy. <laughs> Rudy is being sued again. Again. I can't keep track of how many people are suing Rudy Giuliani. This time, the new entrant into this Rudy sweepstakes is by his divorce attorney for unpaid bills. Now, it turns out that Rudy Giuliani is uh, ever increasingly drowning in debt. And yet another angry associate has come a knocking for a paltry just $10,000. That's it. Oh, that's but it. Okay. Needing, needing that so badly, they decided to sue him. And it's an upstate New York accounting firm that saw Giuliani through his most recent divorce. Now, the company BST and Company CPAs says the former New York City mayor hired them to help value his business assets during his 2018 split from ex-wife Judith Nathan, then never paid a dime of the agreed-upon $10,000 retainer. Now, after five years of trying to get their money, they're suing the apparently flat-out broke Giuliani in a last-ditch attempt to collect, plus another $15,000 in legal fees on top of that base $10,000. So, I, again, there there is going to be... A host of, I, I think about that time in, uh, if you've watched the Matrix movies where inevitably they release the contract on Keanu Reeves, on John Wick's character, and everybody's pager on all these bounty hunters goes off with the contract on John Wick's head. It's going to be like that for for Rudy's Oh, assets. John Wick, not Matrix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, sorry, oh. John Wick. Yeah, it's going, there will be, there will Although be, a, mashup would be fun. A, a score of uh, private investigators and CPAs and other smart financial people trying to find what and where Rudy has stashed assets beyond his, you know, two turntables and a microphone that all these people, you know, starting first and foremost, in my mind, you know, Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman deserve the first cut of it, uh, you know, where they can find assets to attach to uh, and how long, you know, how long that takes. I don't know whether or not Rudy is going to be free or rotting in some Georgia jail. I don't know. But again, <laughs> couldn't happened to a more deserving person. Yeah. And Freeman and Moss were like, hey, judge, can we go out of the jurisdiction now to get the money? And she's like, nah, wait till the trial. She's like, but y'all are going first. So you'll get the first cut of the pie. Well, it's not going to be a very long trial. And it's it's going to be over probably before the end of the year, maybe right after the beginning of the year. So, um, but, you know, everybody's kind of cognizant now that uh, they, they need if they need to get money that Rudy owes them, it's time. The time is now. Uh, to, now I think that the they were like just waiting till the statute of limitations was about was about up on on suing for for those damages. So, and this was I I mistyped in the script. It wasn't it wasn't his divorce attorney. It was a uh, like you said a a CPA firm um, that helped him value his business assets, which is also interesting because if there's discovery in this case and they helped value his business assets we might learn what his business assets are. <laughs> yeah, and I of don't... Of course, he was I, probably hiding it from them, too. So. Yeah, and I, if anything, it, like, helps identify people to the extent attorneys haven't, uh, you know, didn't know about these folks. It highlights somebody who might have some idea of where his financial empire lies. I don't know, like, if, if it were an attorney, there would be privilege attached to it. So even if they had information, they, they would not be... Uh, you couldn't subpoena that and force them to turn it over. I don't know how that works with CPAs, if there's the same sort of financial non-disclosure agreement. I don't think there are. 
are. In other words, if they're subpoenaed, now if they're, you know, attorneys working there alongside CPAs and providing it in a legal context, it might be shielded. But yeah, I, I you know, somebody who knows a lot about your financial sort of uh, uh, where you stand and where all your things are being angry at you and suing you probably is not a great place to be if you're trying to keep your assets uh, your own or hidden. Yeah, especially if we get his tax returns or somebody does and and there were uh, assets not reported there either. That could be big trouble for the man. Um, All right. I have an Alex Jones update for you. You ready for this? Yeah, I'm always ready for Alex Jones craziness. <laughs> yeah, all right. InfoWars host Alex Jones has yet to pay the families of Sandy Hook victims a single penny of the massive damages he owes them for his defamatory lies. So they're backing two ways for him to settle. Either pay $8.5 million a year for 10 years or liquidate his assets. In court papers on Wednesday, this is past Wednesday, a week ago, the Sandy Hook families and an official committee of Jones's creditors argued that Jones case, which has been ongoing for 11 months, should be closed by February. The U.S. Bankruptcy Court for the Southern District of Texas presented two options for Alex Jones, who has ignored paying damages, despite continuing to live a lavish lifestyle costing up to $90,000 a month. And again, the first option allows for an orderly liquidation of Jones's assets, while the second would establish a 10-year payment plan, totaling some $8.5 million annually. Jones's attorneys have asked to schedule a status conference, um, and that status conference took place on November 27th. Uh, as of the recording of this podcast, we don't have the, I don't have the information on that status conference, but it is there to discuss these proposals. And of course, we'll have more for you as it becomes available. Yeah, I mean, enough already. This guy's a scumbag. These families are suffering. This has been done for a long time. I understand you have to, there's a process that has to be followed and it's, you know, better safe than sorry to make sure everything is done properly and nothing is going to get screwed up and tossed out. But enough, enough. This guy, are you kidding me? 90 fucking thousand dollars a month? Right. Well, I mean, he's clearly like, I I mean, he's not using that on a gym membership. So I, I don't, I, where this money is going, the fact that he should be able to continue, let alone everything he did with the past election, just for these, these Sandy Hook families, let's go. I, it, it's, it's time. And so hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll see um, and, and let you know. And then speaking of people who will aggravate you, being federally investigated for potential ties with the Turkish government wasn't enough. Turns out New York Mayor Eric Adams is now facing a sexual assault allegation. So New York City Mayor Eric Adams has been accused of sexually assaulting a woman in 1993, according to a legal summons filed Wednesday. The three-page filing does not contain details of the alleged assault, but names Adams, the Transit Bureau of the New York Police Department, and the New York Police Department Guardians Association as defendants. The summons was filed under the Adult Survivors Act, a special New York law that created a year-long suspension of the usual time limit to sue over an alleged sexual assault. The suit against Adams was filed just before the window to bring cases under the law was scheduled to close after Thanksgiving. The filing seeks a trial and $5 million in relief. It was filed in state Supreme Court in Manhattan, the woman's attorney did not immediately return an email request for comment this last Thursday. So, I, again, I, does that surprise me? Not at all. Does it seem entirely plausible? Sadly, yes, it does. 
But, uh, you know, if this does not get settled, you know, it will, there's going to be a lot more information coming out and we'll, we'll see what that brings. Yeah. And of course, we'll keep an eye on the rest of New York City Mayor Eric Adams's legal woes for you uh, as that um, investigation unfolds. He has yet to be charged. He has not been charged with any crimes. He denies all wrongdoing. Uh, but we will we will be on indictment watch in that case. So uh, anyway, thank you again, everybody. This was our Hall of Fame episode. Thanks to all of our Hall of Famers. We really appreciate you. Um, we'll start shouting out uh, new patrons again uh, next week. Uh, and uh, I hope everybody had a great November. Man, d- November came and went so fast, Pete. We're already in December. We're looking at those trials. And then right around the corner, January with e and we got February with the pyramid fraud scheme, and then bam, it's March, and uh, we're we're staring down the barrel of the D.C. federal court uh, trial against Donald Trump for his insurrection. So, yeah, and sprinkle in there all of the various states who are deciding whether or not to put Trump on their ballots or not, based on the Fourteenth Amendment. Those things eventually percolating up to the Supreme Court. There's just a ton that's going to be going on. So. Enjoy the holiday season because it's going to go by in a flash and we're going to be, you know, deep, deep, deep into the uh, trials and legal tribulations of Trump. Yep. And uh, we'll be uh, back in your ears next week. I hope everybody enjoyed this episode. Uh, And again, I hope everyone had a wonderful holiday uh, and you have a wonderful holiday coming up. But, you know, we'll see you before then. Do you have any final thoughts, Pete? No, no. Can't wait. We'll sit and see what... uh, what I, I I'm really looking forward to seeing, you know, where the New York trial and the civil trial goes with this gag order because this is going to wrap up. And again, we've got folks, you know, the the children and then Donald heading to the uh, to the docket to testify, and that's always going to be a show. So we'll yeah, keep an and eye I'm also on that looking and, forward to Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss getting getting an uh, an award in their case against Rudy, which is coming up right around the bend. So, all right, everybody, we'll see you next week. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Strzok. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. M-S-W-Media. <laughs>